149 for our Old Testament reading. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah 49. And then our New Testament reading in text for this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18. So Isaiah 49 and Philippians 2. Hear the word of the Lord as it comes from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Lord, call me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering among you, a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word to your people. Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of illumination. We long to understand and to know your word, to, to rest in it, to believe in it, to obey it where necessary, because it comes to us from your mouth. It's God breathed. And now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word, grant strength. 
Grant the unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant and the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be glorified as your people in a constable way. Listen to your word and take it in and believe it. And it bears fruit in their lives to live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a month since I've been here because the third Sunday in October coincided with our member a meeting of Presbytery, and uh, it's a lot to go down to Georgia for two days and then run com- over here. And so the session allowed me to actually go to my own church. I've actually visited my own church twice in the last four weeks. And I can't remember the time was before that, but it's my joy to be back with you. Let me remind you, we're in the midst of this new series on on Paul's letter to the Philippians. One of the things I told you up front about this book is it's a very warm book because of the relationship that existed between the Apostle Paul and between the believers in Philippi. It's warm, it's personal, um, it's, it's a thank you letter that Paul is writing because Paul finds himself in God's providence. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a palace guard. The Philippians had no idea what had happened to him. We don't know how they learned it, but as soon as they learned about the circumstances of their beloved Paul, They take up an offering. They send it with Epaphroditus. They tell Epaphroditus, you stay as long as you need to stay to take care of Paul and to meet his needs. And part of what Paul's doing in this epistle is he's saying to them, thank you for caring for me. Even though he says in this epistle, I'm really not in need. Now, everybody knows that he's in need except for the Apostle Paul. We see that as we read this. But one of the things that we find with this personal approach to this letter is, is it doesn't out as some of Paul's epistles, as they typically do. Uh, oftentimes they'll begin with what we call the indicative. There'll be two or three chapters that are about doctrine and truth and who you are in Christ that, that are rich in that doctrine. And then there's a shift and a turn where he moves to the imperative and he begins to make application and to give exhortations to those that he is addressing in the epistles. And this, it tends to be more intermixed. There's some autobiographical material that we find here. There's this warmness and this exchange that takes place. But one of the things that we saw last time that I was here just to remind you is even when Paul turns early in the epistle to to an exhortation, to an imperative. And in that case, let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the attitude that we see in Christ Jesus, which means be humble among each other even as Christ Jesus humbled himself. Then he grounds it with Christ as the example. And we had this glorious Christ hymn in the first part of this chapter that speaks of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ as he humbled himself, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ as he obeyed the Father in everything, and in particular, 
the completion of that obedience in death, death on a cross. And then the second half of this Christ hymn is the exaltation of Christ Jesus because of how he humbled himself before God and was obedient. And he was given the name above every name, which of course is the name Lord, that at the name of of, of Christ Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have this great example of Christ Jesus uh, to, to, to be the ground for this exhortation. Be humble. <laughs> be humble with each other. Well, we continue to move on with, with exhortation, but also intermixed with deep theology in the text that we have for today. Look at what he says. Exhortation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's saying, you you have this reputation. I've seen it. You've always been obedient meaning fundamentally obedient to God, but also being obedient to God by being obedient to the exhortations that the apostle himself has given to them. He says, be obedient, not only in my presence, when I'm there, but in my absence. It sounds like a parent, doesn't it? It sounds like mom and dad. It sounds like my wife. <laughs> my wife and I have this little thing when I'm, taking off almost every time she'll say be good and you can hear in the back of be good not only in my presence <laughs> but also in my absence <clears throat> be good and I have this little retort why that's no fun now that's a jovial thing that we say among ourselves and she chuckles and I chuckle and, and we do that over and over and over again but, but is this not true, really, of parents? You tell your kids, be good, um, not only when you're in my house, but be good when you're across the world, <laughs> when you're stationed somewhere else. Not just remember mom and dad and be good, but remember your God. Remember your God. I, I can't see you and whether or not you're being obedient, but you can't. God doesn't see you. Be good, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Here he uses the expression obey. Now, that's a word we don't like, isn't it? The flesh hates the word obey. The flesh just hates the word obey. That goes all the way back to the garden. I want to do what I want to do. Obey. God says obey. We, we read the law, did we not? The first table of the law this morning. It's important to note that the law is given to a redeemed people. He brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's to a redeemed people that the law comes and God says, now obey my word. Here's something that we need to recognize about the law. The devil's lie is that the law is a yoke. 
The devil's lie is that the law is God's attempt to simply constrict and control you um, and not allow you to be free. That that's what the law is. It's a yoke upon your back. And God says, obey me or else. That is the devil's lie. The law is designed by God for your good always. It is his love to you that he gives you his law. Rather than binding you, it liberates you. How does it liberate you? It liberates you because now that you're in Christ Jesus, you're at liberty to be what God created you to be, which is to delight in and to keep his law. I remember... Um, a number of years ago, talking to one of our pastors. And we were talking about two young men in one family that were in deep spiritual trouble. Godly family. But one of the young men refused to profess his faith. The other young man man actually was later uh, excommunicated. But, 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 but was restored. You know, the Lord brought him back in repentance. We're thankful for that. And when the pastor was dealing with both of these young men, he, he took them to the passages that talk about delighting in the law of God. The law of God is sweeter than honey, sweeter than the honeycomb, more to be desired than gold, than much fine gold. And both those young men said, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I don't desire restrictions. I don't desire laws that limit my, my, my liberty. Their problem was they didn't understand who God is. You need to recognize that. If you're, in your mind, your view of the law of God is the law of God is, it's, it's God's way of trying to control you and to restrict you and, and, and to, to, to strip you of your liberty. If that's your view, your, your view of God is wrong. No, God wants you to be what he created you to be and the liberty of what he created you to be. And his law is the way you pursue that. His law is always good, but it takes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in order to change your disposition to see that law for what it is and to delight in it and to desire it more than honey and more than fine gold. The flesh doesn't like the word obey. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came in the flesh, obeyed the Father at every point even unto death, death on the cross, and delighted in doing his Father's will. He said, that's my meat. My meat, my sustenance is do the will of my Father. The Lord Jesus Christ understood. Of course, he's God's Son made flesh. But he teaches us as well. We shouldn't be afraid of the word or recall from the word obey. Obey. Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now we have another conundrum. The flesh doesn't like the word obey. Our understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and justification by grace through faith alone and not by the works of the law 
makes us recall from the word work or works when it is associated with the salvation of God. And yet that's exactly what Paul tells us in the text. Okay, obedience is tough because of the flesh. But God is at work in you. Before we get to that, though, look at what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you hear how we recall from that? I'm saved by grace, not by works. That's true. So, so why is Paul the champion of justification by grace through faith? Why is this same Paul saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And here's where you've got to learn something very important when you're reading your Bible. This is a, a hermeneutical principle or a principle of interpretation. When you come to theologically charged words like salvation, be careful. It's not important at that point to understand what is the systematic theology, what is its definition of salvation. What's important is how is that theologically charged word used in this text in the Bible. And the word salvation is used in different ways in the Bible. The same Paul says that, you know, we're justified by grace through faith and through faith alone, not by works. He tells us that even the faith itself is the gift of God. We're talking about justification when he's talking about salvation in that sense. But when you read the whole of Scripture, you find out that the word salvation sometimes is referring to our standing before God, which is what justification addresses. But sometimes the word salvation is used in a broader sense. Of the whole of the application Christ secured in the cross to you, which is more than justification. Now, I may have used this illustration with you before, but I'm going to use it again because it's a good illustration. Salvation is like a bouquet of flowers with different flowers. A, a rose, an iris, a petunia. My grandmother used to have petunias in her garden. <clears throat> Daisy. Each different aspects representing different aspects of salvation, like justification, like sanctification, like conversion, like calling, like regeneration, like glorification, adoption. These are blessings that are yours, that are the package of salvation when you look at all of it together. <clears throat> You have to understand the individual flowers. You have to understand the individual aspects of our salvation and how they interrelate with each other. But you get the whole bouquet. And it's wrapped up and tied together by union with Christ. And when you come to Christ Jesus, you get the whole bouquet. You get justification. You get sanctification as well. There is rightly a way of saying, I've been saved. You hear that? I'm saved. I've been saved. You know, 
the Lord brought me to himself. I repented and I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saved. And, and that is a legitimate way to speak. That's talking about justification. You're standing before God. You can also say just as equally, I'm being saved. That is the work of sanctification is ongoing in my life, conforming me to the image of his son. Not imperfection in this life. But you can also say, I will be saved. That is, in terms of glorification when Christ comes in the clouds of glory. The same word saved, but understood from this first this perspective, then that, and then the other. When Paul is speaking about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not talking about your justification. Your works contribute nothing to your legal standing and status before God. You're declared righteous by grace through faith based upon an alien righteousness, that is, a righteousness not your own, that's credited to your account or imputed to you, and that's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And works have nothing to do with your justification. But everyone who has saving faith under justification works. <laughs> because sanctification always accompanies justification in the life of the believer. And therefore, you do work. And it is a struggle working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a cooperative effort. The Spirit of God is at work in you, yes, but you are cooperating with that in submission to Him. He works in you. The end result of that are good works that you perform. And the text here anticipates that. Look at what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm so glad for this comma and what follows. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not just that God saves you, you're justified, and then he says, now you're on your own. (laughs) Go do it. Go obey my commandments. Now, that's not the way it works at all. The God who saves you by grace through faith, you're also united with Christ sanctification is taking place in you. He doesn't leave you or forsake you. He is at work in you, giving you the want to and the to do. The desire to obey him comes from that inner work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in you. We talk about tulip. We talk about the P of tulip, the five points of Calvinism. The P is what? Perseverance of the saints. That is, Those who have saving faith persevere. They continue to believe until the end. But you can also see the P another way. And when I do the ordo salutis, when I write it on the board, I put in parentheses preservation. You persevere because God preserves you. God is at work in you. He will not let you go. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but you're not by yourself. You're united with Christ. He's at work in you, giving you both the want to and the to do, the power to do, that is to walk in obedience to him, which is what the exhortation is. It's important that we understand this. It's important that we understand it's both and, it's not either or. Salvation is not a smorgasbord. 
You don't go up there and say, well, what is Jesus offering me? Oh, ooh, I want some of that justification. I certainly don't want to go to hell in the end. Um, give me just a taste of that sanctification. I kind of like my sin a bit. Uh, oh, give me that adoption. I want to be a son. And give me that perseverance. I mean, I, I want to continue to believe. <laughs> we'll hold off on the glorification until the end. Now, that's not the way it works. It's not a smorgasbord. You get the whole bouquet. Salvation is the whole bouquet. And that's what's, that's what's given to us by God. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He just uncovered another sin, didn't he? No, two sins. Sometimes I think the people in the pew are experts at grumbling. Whether you're talking about an OPC church or you're talking about Israel in the wilderness. (laughs) We know how to murmur, do we not? Look up, confess up. You know how to grumble, you know how to complain. And and those in the pulpit are good at disputing. (laughs) Actually, those in the pew are good at disputing. And believe me, they may not show it, but those in the pulpit are good at grumbling as well. Flash, it's the flash. It's, it's part of our experience because our sanctification is not entire in this life. And so we need these exhortations to remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus and these exhortations to remind us, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Without grumbling or disputing. We say, but it's important. It is. Whatever the debate is may very well be important, but without grumbling and without disputing, actually resting in God's sovereign goodness in the midst of it. Here are the exhortations. Obey. Here are the exhortations. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now, that gives us the heebie-jeebies too. (laughs) Work out your salvation gives us the heebie-jeebies. Obey gives us the heebie-jeebies. Y'all know what heebie-jeebies are? Okay, just making sure. Blameless, innocent, without blemish. I hear those words. I look in the mirror and I see blemishes. Do you? I see sometimes I'm blameworthy. This is, this is what happens. But you need to see this is in contrast to what follows. He's not talking about perfection. None of us are there. The blemishes do exist. Yes, we are saints and we are holy because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and we are being sanctified, but it's not complete in this age, but it's in contrast to we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What he's saying here is be blameworthy. Another way of putting it is to be above reproach. We saw this when we looked through Titus and those requirements, spiritual requirements for elders and for deacons, that they be above reproach. Remember that. 
That is, the reputation of this person is this is a righteous person. This is a good person. Not a perfect person, but this is someone who lives what they profess. Here in this text, we live in a dark and perverse and crooked generation. We can't be dark and perverse and crooked. Not anymore. We're in Christ Jesus. And if we live blameworthy lives before the public out there, the end result is among whom you shine as lights in the world. And even though they may persecute us because the darkness wants to put out the light, they have to say there's something different about those Christians. The way they love each other. The way they treat other people, the way they treat unbelievers, the way they live in this life. I can't point blame. I can't say, look at that hypocrite. And you say, but sometimes I feel like a hypocrite. I know. I understand that. But Christians should live in such a way that they are blameworthy before this crooked and perverse generation in which we live. And when you live that way, in obedience to the law of God, as Paul began the text, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, resting upon the fact that it's he who's at work in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure, that manifests itself in how you live in this crooked and perverse generation around you. And you shine like lights. And you're planting seeds of the gospel that are as important as when you testify to the gospel itself. When they see your life is transformed, when they see the difference that's in you because God is at work in you, then it makes believable what you tell them about why you're this way. It's because of Christ Jesus and what he's done for me and in me. And only because of Christ Jesus and what he's done for me and in me. And seeds of the gospel are planted and you may not even realize they're being planted. I knew a guy that was telling a story a few years back at science camp. One of the, <clears throat> one of the teachers that particular year and, and he was in the fire department. And he had a close friend who was an unbeliever that was in in the fire department as well. And, and sometimes they talked about Christian faith and one who wasn't a believer. Sometimes he was a bit ridiculed by this friend, but for the most part, that wasn't the case. Then they had a situation where a house burned down and two children were burned up in the house. And they're there the next day and they're digging through the ashes and they discover these two burned bodies of these children and this friend of his put his finger in his face says where was your God when this happened and he said I don't say I didn't say anything but he didn't back down he didn't deny the goodness of God in the midst of this then several years passed they lost track of each other either he went his way or the other one did I can't remember and he got a phone call, and his friend was in the hospital. He had cancer. 
He said, I want you to come see me and bring your Bible. And his friend left this life and entered into glory in Christ Jesus. The seeds that you plant by living the way God calls us to live bear fruit. Sometimes in the lives of people who protest the loudest, when that time comes, those seeds come to fruition. And we need to be aware of this as Christians in how we interact with the world. How tempted are we when we're in the right to dispute and to be angry and to stand up for our rights in, in a way that, that doesn't come across as blameworthy. And we're sowing seeds not of light but of darkness. How do you live? How do you live in this crooked and perverse generation that's all around us? And it is. It is darkness. How we live becomes light. It's reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the light and who is at work in us. And you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run, did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here Paul is in prison. Remember, here he is. He's received this gift from this church that he loves. Here he is still exhorting them to faithfulness and to good deeds and, and to hold on to Christ Jesus because he doesn't know. He says, I may be a, a drink offering that's being poured out. He may be about to be executed. And, and what does he long for? He longs for there to be fruit for his ministry. And he longs for that fruit to be shown on the day when Christ Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. And there are these Philippians. There's Lydia. There's her family. There's the Philippian jailer. There's his family. There's Epaphroditus. There's the others that are, that are part of the church in Philippi. And they are righteous in Christ Jesus. And so his sufferings in his own ministry, and the persecutions that's brought to him, these things are not in vain, but they're producing fruit that is everlasting fruit and eternal fruit and that's what he's longing for in those to whom he's ministered it's evident it's there or Epaphroditus wouldn't be there with the gift that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith even if it's cost me my life even if it's cost me everything even if Herod's going to remove my head because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am glad and rejoice with you all. This is the epistle of joy. I'm glad. I'm willingly poured out as a drink offering. I willingly sacrifice my head. There's fruit in your life from this ministry. 
Likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the epistle of joy. He's in prison, but he's rejoicing. He's in prison. He's calling upon the Philippians to rejoice. This is canonical. The Spirit of God inspired this letter. It's not just to the Philippians. It's to us. The exhortation to us. We are to rejoice because of what Christ has done in us for us, in us, and what Christ is doing through us. And all of that is seen in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for this portion of your word. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus and how full that salvation is. Father, we thank you that, yes, when we are consumed with you and with your salvation, we can rejoice even if imprisoned, as Paul did. Oh Lord, we pray that on that last day we will be able to see the fruit of seed that you you used us to sow that we didn't even know took root. And we will rejoice before your throne. And Lord, we pray that you would work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. And you continue to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.